In the early 1990s, Australia was rocked by the gruesome murders of seven backpackers in Belanglo State Forest. To this day, the backpacker murders remain some of the worst killings in the country's history. And it was all the work of one disturbing predator named Ivan Milat. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan, and today I've got something a little different for you. I hadn't heard about this case until I was chatting with a good friend. I was immediately hooked and wanted to know more. And that good friend is here with me now, live from Australia. Not far, in fact, from where these crimes were committed. Hey everyone, and hey Belle, I'm super excited to be here. Hey! Oh, this is so, so exciting. Okay, so what intrigued me with this case is that, yes, it happened in Australia, but it actually has a huge British connection, that the two countries have become forever linked by this case. So what better way to fill our audience in on the details than with an Aussie and a Brit? Honestly, this case is crazy, Belle. A journalist by the name of Mark Wicktaker, who wrote a book about these murders, said... There are just some people who are dirty, rotten people. I was often sitting there at my typewriter crying. I just don't think there's a moral to this story. This is definitely intriguing. So let's just get into it. So like many serial killers, Ivan Milat grew up in a completely dysfunctional family. He was born Ivan Robert Marco Milat on December 27th, 1944, to a poor family of Croatian immigrants in Guildford, Australia. His father was often violent and his mother almost permanently pregnant. She had 14 children, like I can't, I can barely cope with two, but she had 14 children, including Ivan, who was the fifth child. Two of his other 13 siblings died. Ivan and his huge family grew up in a shack house in Moorbank, which is a suburb located just on the outskirts of Sydney. And the siblings were enrolled in a private Catholic school. But after classes, they would totally get themselves into mischief. They were used to handling knives and firearms and spent their afternoons shooting at targets in their parents' backyard. And Ivan was actually a well-known delinquent to the police by the age of 13. Bill, when you say knives, we're talking machetes here. Mm -hmm. Like him and mates were going out at night wielding these machetes at anything and everything. And supposedly Ivan's mates bragging told everyone how Ivan had chopped a dog in half with this machete. I just don't even have words for that. Chopped a dog in I don't, I can't. Okay. <laughs> it's just disturbing. Like... Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, okay, let's move on. Soon enough, his crimes escalated. I mean, his crimes escalated. Just chopping that dog in half is enough for me. But his crimes did escalate. By age 17, he'd been sent to a juvenile detention centre for theft. And by 19, he'd broken into a local store. Speaking of him being 17, he had a brother called Boris, who actually is the only one in Ivan's family who has spoken out against him. He testified that Ivan 100% was showing psychopathic tendencies from a young age. Just before being sent to juvie, he allegedly confessed to Boris that he accidentally shot a taxi driver during a stick-up gone wrong. The man was left paralysed from the waist down. Ivan was never caught and an innocent man ended up being convicted and served five years in prison for his crime. And if only it had stopped there. That would have been bad enough. So he goes to juvie 
He gets out. And then in 1971, at the age of 26, he's charged with raping two female backpackers. Super frustratingly, the prosecutors are just completely sloppy and Ivan gets acquitted. But basically, he's gotten away with this crime. So what, he figures he can get away with more and worse crimes? Yep, exactly. So he attempted the rape and murder of two more women in 1977, but was somehow never charged. So now it's 1984, and Ivan marries a woman 15 years younger than him, but the marriage goes south quickly. So any sane person just moves on, right? But no, not Mm -hmm. Ivan. Instead, he burns down her parents' home in the town of Newcastle, New South Wales. In fact, his ex-wife testified against Ivan at trial and said that he was obsessed with guns and well-known as violent, controlling and possessive. And it's after this divorce that things escalate dramatically. In 1989, backpackers start going missing. Like, it's not one or two, it's becoming a pattern, right? Right. Yeah, so it starts happening in the Belingolo State Forest area. And it's not like he's only targeted solo travellers either. You know, thinking they're alone, an easy target. Two of his early victims were a teenage couple who were on their way to Confest. Confest is an alternative bush campaign festival held in the southeastern states of Australia annually during the Long Australia Weekend, where participants host workshops including things like yoga, meditation, dance, music, just to name a few. I'm so glad that you <laughs> explained that because I was literally about to say to you, Anne, what is Confest? That actually sounds pretty cool. Okay, so like I said, this was 1989 that the backpackers start going missing. But it's not until 1992 that any bodies start being found. So on September 19th, 1992, in the Belangelo State Forest area, also, like I said, located in New South Wales, two runners stumbled on a hidden body. Face down, in the dirt, hands tied behind their back. Then another body was found the next morning by police just 98 feet from the first body. Dental records identified the two bodies as British backpackers, Caroline Clark, who was 21, and Joanne Walters, who was 22. And they were both last seen in the April before on their way to Victoria to go fruit picking. But their bodies had just been laying there for six months. Yeah, exactly right. And the autopsy report showed that the two had been brutally slaughtered. Caroline had been blindfolded and marched into the woods execution style and then shot 10 times in the head. In fact, the police believed that her body had been used for target practice. I just I just can't even. And Joanne had been stabbed 14 times, four times in the chest, once in the neck, and nine times in the back, which ultimately severed her spine. Now, understandably, police thought that they would find more bodies in the forest now that they'd found three all kind of pretty much next to each other. But they didn't. A search of the area came up with nothing. They weren't entirely wrong, though. More bodies did come to light, but not until a whole year later. In October 1993, a local man was just out and about collecting firewood when he stumbled across what to him looked like human bones. Let me guess, in the Belingolo State Forest. You got it. It was the bodies of two teenagers that we mentioned a minute ago, the ones that were on their way to Confest. Deborah Everest, who was 19, and James Gibson, also 19. 
James was found in the fetal position, literally covered with stab wounds, so deep that his spine had been severed, sounds familiar, and his lungs punctured. Deborah had been beaten, her head fractured and her jaw broken and she'd been stabbed once in the back. What was strange about this murder and why I asked if it was in the Belengalay State Forest was because the location of the teenagers' bodies baffled police because their belongings had been found. Like we said, back in 1989, 78 miles north. That's crazy. I mean, that is, that's not just... Two minutes away. 78 miles is a lot. Right. Strap in, okay? Strap in because we aren't done yet. The next month, so where are we? That would be November 1993. A skeleton was found in a clearing along a fire trail in the forest during a police sweep. The remains were identified as a missing German backpacker called Simone Schmiedel. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, so I apologise to any Germans out there. But Simone was age 21. These were just all kids, basically. Like, it's heartbreaking. It's uncomprehendable. I know, know, right? She had also been stabbed so deeply that her spine had been severed. So this is like three people now that they're being Mm. stabbed so much that their spines are being severed. Then on a nearby fire trail, two more corpses were discovered. More German travellers. Now, I don't want to butcher their names, so we'll just use their first names. Gabor, who was 21, and then Anya, who was 20. And they had also been missing for two years. Anya had been decapitated, but investigators were never able to find her head or skull, I guess it would have been by then. And Gabor had been shot in the head six times. This is like actual carnage bell the cops just keep stumbling across these bodies Mm -hmm. i guess because it had been something us aussies had really never seen before it dominated our news that's when it got given the nickname backpacker murders well to be honest that seems pretty accurate because these were all just kids traveling and hitchhiking their way around australia so many have done it before them and so many have done it since then Authorities counted that between 1989 and 1992, the unknown killer had committed a murder every 12 months. Obviously, his target of choice was young travellers, both men and women, whom they guessed he'd picked up as they tried to hitch rides from strangers going from Sydney to Melbourne. Now, this is really interesting. The media frenzy soon threw up the Milat brothers' names and the fact that they were known to have firearms and only lived about an hour away from the Belanglo State Forest. Frustratingly, though, authorities didn't have any evidence that would warrant a search of the Milats or their property where Ivan was actually still living with his mum. This is where our two countries collide, though, right? Yep, sure is. So as with most murder investigations, the tip lines run hot, but usually they're just armchair detectives or pranksters. But all of a sudden, police find themselves with a tip that might actually be worth looking into. Among the flood of tipsters eventually comes a tip from a British man named Paul Onions. Paul was an ex-Navy man who had backpacked around Australia years prior. He told Australian investigators that a man had tried to kill him during his travels and that he believed that this was the same man responsible for the other backpacker murders. Paul said that this man had introduced himself as Bill and offered him a lift while he was backpacking along the highway. 
Paul accepted, but started getting pretty sus that Bill, in inverted commas, had pulled off the main road down dirt tracks. He went a bit further until they reached a secluded area away from the highway. He stopped his car, pulled out a gun and rope. Paul told investigators that he remembered thinking, this is it, run or die. So he undid his seatbelt and jumped straight out of the car and ran. Wow, just wow. I mean, this could have ended so, so differently for Paul. Do we know if he fired shots at Paul as Paul was running or have I just watched way too many movies (laughs) actually you are spot on Ivan or Bill whatever you want to call him in that moment he did fire at Paul as he tried to run across the Hume Highway he flagged down a female driver by the name of Joanne Berry he was yelling and pleading at her for help and I'm just so glad that she did stop and it was Joanne that helped him escape and for him to now be able to tell the tale to Aussie investigators so I was a bit mad about this next part Obviously, Paul and Joanne drove straight to police and gave a statement, but it was waved off and just forgotten. Oh, so frustrating. I feel you. Honestly, lives could have been possibly spared for sure. Well, in fairness, Paul did brush it off too. He went home and essentially forgot about it. I'm not really sure how you can forget about it, but this is what I found in my research that he did. He brushed it off and and forgot about it until he saw the news on our TV stations over here in the UK about the Belangelo backpacker murders. Now, thankfully, when he called the tip line, it wasn't brushed off like before. Australian authorities immediately flew Paul from London to Sydney to try and identify the man who had attempted to kidnap and murder him. They showed him 13 photos of possible suspects and with zero hesitation, Paul picked out photo number four as his almost killer. And that photo was of Ivan Milat. While they'd been getting Paul over to Australia and dealing with that side of things, they'd also been going through other old reports to see if there'd been any other reports like Paul's that had maybe been ignored. And there was So authorities reached out to two women who had been hitchhiking in 1977 near the forest and had, just like Paul, narrowly escaped being murdered at the hands of an anonymous man with black straggly hair. After being shown a bunch of photos, which included both Ivan and his brother Richard, one of the women identified both brothers. Bingo. They've got him, right? Well, together with his 1971 rape charge from two female backpackers, yep, they were pretty convinced that they'd found their backpacker murderer. They placed a wiretap on the Milat family home, which was owned and shared between Ivan and his sister, Shirley, who many said, including their brother George, was in on it and in some way involved in the murders as well. George was reported saying, I can't really say Shirley did commit the murders, all I can do is say she was involved, end quote. It gets worse, Belle. Shirley and Ivan also allegedly had been having a sexual relationship since the 1950s. You honestly just could not make this case up. That right. I, I don't I don't even have words for that and I don't want to get into that right now because there was just so much to this case that Yeah, that mm, disturbing, disturbing. So on May 22nd, 1994, teams of armed police dressed in bulletproof vests surrounded the perimeter of the Milat home, while allegedly Ivan laughed and mocked the lead negotiator as if it was all just some big joke. 
The armed police finally managed to place him under arrest, searched the premises and found a postcard from someone in New Zealand who referred to Ivan as Bill. The same name Paul had given them? Exactly. And the same firearm cartridges and electrical tape found at some of the murder scenes, along with Indonesian currency, were all seized. Now, Ivan had never travelled to Indonesia, but two of the victims, Gabor and Anya, so two of the Germans, had spent time there right before travelling over to Australia. And just to add icing on the cake for the investigators, to have Ivan completely banged to rights, they found backpacking items and other equipment around the house and even inside the home's walls. And those items matched the belongings of several of the Belangelo Forest victims. The lead investigator literally described the discovery as an Aladdin's cave of evidence, end quote. And it goes without saying that Ivan was obviously convicted. Literally all that evidence just handed him to the jury on a plate. He was given seven life sentences, one for each of the victims, plus another six years for attempting to kidnap Paul Onions. And these life sentences actually meant life. No chance of parole whatsoever. So this case is still spoken about a lot in my area for a few reasons. And one is, how the heck did he manage to kill alone? Because remember, he didn't only kill solo travellers, the main theory being that he had an accomplice, like his brother Richard, because one of the females that survived recognised Richard from the mugshots. No evidence against him has ever been found, though. Yeah, I mean, maybe he'd kidnapped them by trapping them in the car, and then between Ivan, Richard and Shirley, they killed them and took them back to the forest. That's literally just me putting that out there, as we know for definite that he didn't have anyone else in the car with Paul. So honestly, I don't know. I I understand, like, the theories, but I don't know. So now you were telling me also that they don't even know if they've found all of the victims. Right. Police have a whole bunch of missing person cases dating right back to the 1970s, which the thing is, it could also have been Ivan's doing. It's just heartbreaking thinking that there's families out there with no closure, like 50 plus years on. So in my research, I was thinking, okay, well, good. The bad guy has been locked up and that's that, right? But you'd think I'd know better by now, because very rarely do they just sit quietly in prison, rotting away. In 1997, Ivan attempted to break out of prison along with a fellow prisoner, a convicted drug dealer. Thankfully, they did fail miserably, but the drug dealer hung himself in his cell the next day. Ivan was transferred to the maximum security super prison in Goulburn, New South Wales. So is that kind of far from where the murders took place? It's approximately 30 minutes, so very close. Yeah, okay. So he was kind of kept in the same area. So aside from trying to break out, again, in true killer fashion, he has maintained his innocence and was on a crusade to clear his name from the minute he stepped foot in jail. He wrote hundreds of letters to reporters and Australian newspapers claiming his innocence, including a letter to the popular paper, the Sydney Morning Herald. He even printed out the phrase, Ivan is innocent, using the prison's labelling machine, and he plastered the labels all over the prison walls. Certified nuts. Exactly. There's more, though. He wrote to the New South Wales Supreme Court, the DNA Review Panel, and the Attorney General's office asking for a review of his trial. And are you ready? He even cut off his little finger 
with a plastic knife so that he could mail it to the high court to force an appeal on his case. I will say it again. You cannot make this up. Eventually, Ivan was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and was moved to the medical ward of Long Bay Correctional Centre for chemo. And on October 27th, 2019, at the age of 74, he died. I'm just glad that at least seven families had some closure and knew he never got to see the light of day again. Even after his death, there was a movie made of the backpacker murders called Wolf Creek. So although it's set on the other side of Australia in Western Australia and the killing in the movie are made up, elements from the backpack create the film story. Right. So the film's director, Greg McLean, said in a press junket that the main character, Mick, is a mix of both Ivan Milat and Bradley Murdoch, who, if you've not heard of him, he was the man charged for the murder of British backpacker Peter Falconio in 2005. Now, I was actually living in Australia over that whole time period and remember the Peter Falconio case super well. Greg then said in that same junket that Wolf Creek is combined elements of those true characters. And then he took a lot of Australian stereotyped characters and cultural mythology like Crocodile Dundee and Steve Irwin and threw that in there too. So just to wrap up today's case, can you tell us any more about the family today? Yes, yeah, so some members like his brother, Boris, have spoken about Ivan's crimes, which we brought out today. But there are others in his family that to this day still defend him. One of his biggest supporters is his nephew, Alistair Shipsey. Alistair has spoken to Aussie Press quite a few times to try and clear his uncle's name. So Alistair's dad committed suicide when he was 16 and wow. he said that it was Ivan that had helped to pay for part of the funeral and headstone and they stayed close ever since. He went on record saying, quote, I am his oldest nephew and we have always been close. He's a good person with a good heart. He was a tower of strength, end quote. Then Ivan's mum, Margaret Malat, who one of the Malat brothers say is the only person that Ivan confessed to has always maintained that Ivan wasn't guilty and refused to listen to anything that suggested otherwise. Oh, wow, that's a toughie. I mean, I adore my boys, but I would like to think that if the evidence was smacking me in the face, I would be able to recognise their guilt. Right, exactly. I'm not done. Okay, I know exactly where you're going with this. Honestly, Coffee and Crimers, I don't think I actually told you to strap in enough at the start for a wild ride. In 2012, Ivan's great-nephew, Matthew Malat, and his friend, Cohen Klein, were sentenced to prison 43 years for Matthew and 32 years for Cohen for the murder of their classmate, David, on his 17th birthday. Oh, I remember this. Matthew and Cohen had lured the teenager to, any guesses? Yep, the Belangolo State Forest, the exact wow. same place where Matthew's great-uncle Ivan had committed those heinous murders all those decades ago. They lured him there with the promise of smoking weed and drinking as a birthday treat, but instead they slaughtered him with an axe. The Malat name literally needs to be extinguished at this point. Oh, I hear you. Thank you so much, Alana, for asking me to look into this case and bring it to our listeners. It's been a crazy, wild ride, but I have loved having you here. I thank you for having me on, Belle. It's a gruesome case that sadly just won't be forgotten. But thank you to all of Belle's listeners for tuning in. Much love and blessings to you all. 
Thank you. And again, to our listeners, thank you for listening. And to see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe.